I don't know if life has uh, panned out the way that you'd expected it. I don't know what dreams or ambitions you had as a, as a child. Uh, I wanted to be a pilot. I desperately wanted to be a pilot growing up. Um, I wanted to jet off across the world, spend time on beaches of uh, warmer climate than the beaches I'd grown up in South Wales. Um, but as I got older, I realised that actually it was probably quite unrealistic and that it was basically a life of maths and being stuck in a small space for hours on end with one other person to talk to, which, if you know me, wasn't my idea of a dream job. Those who know me will agree that I would not be a good pilot. I thought about being a paramedic. Uh, I thought, you know, maybe I could go and do that, be on the front line in people's uh, greatest hour of need. Uh, But then did I want to spend my life picking up drunk people off the floor? Not really. So I moved on. I looked at being a teacher, uh, a French teacher, and I thought that would be good fun. And I uh, looked at uh, whether I could do French in education. So I applied to do uh, French and, and teaching at university in, um, in Oxford Brooks. I usually leave off the Brooks. Um, <laughs> but in all the years of thinking of what I might like to do, the last place I ever thought I would find myself is working in prisons. Uh, there was one major obstacle to working in prisons for me, and that was that I was petrified of crime. When I was 17, I couldn't stay in the house on my own. If my 12-year-old brother was with us, that would be fine, because what I could do is kind of send him downstairs, and if there was any form of screaming, I knew that something was up. And if there wasn't, then he was either kind of dead or or fine. Um, I had no reason to have a fear of crime. We'd grown up in a very leafy suburb of Cardiff. The closest we'd got to serious and organised crime was a speed in a cardo van delivering a £6.50 twig of asparagus. Judging from the nervous laughter, some of you have had that upbringing too. That was the height of criminality for us. That was the biggest fear that gripped my life. And when I went to leave um, college, I thought I wanted to do a gap year. That's because that's what everyone did. And the destination was going to be Africa, because that's what everyone did. Uh, That's what all my mates did. They went to Africa. They got their photo with a smiling child whose world had been turned upside down by their three months' attendance. That was my plan. That was my plan for life. But as I was trying to plan out this, um, this, this kind of gap year, my friend's mum said to me, why, why don't you come on a visit to a prison? And I thought, what a ridiculous idea. What an absolutely ridiculous idea. You're going to take me to the place with the people who I am most fearful of. A place of criminals. A place of crime. Those people who wrecked people's lives and people's homes. Those people who inflicted so much misery. But something intrigued me. What was it like? Was it like the movies? Was it like Shawshank? Would they all be shackled to one another? And they'd all walk in depressing straight lines. So eventually, after much persuading, I went down to Oak Hill um, Secure Training Centre. It was a prison that held 10 to 18-year-olds, serving for anything from two months in prison to life in prison. A very, very dark place. We went into um, this place and we got searched, uh, like like going into an airport, but even more intrusive than that. And I walked into the chapel to rows and rows and rows of seats. And what greeted me in this chapel was absolute horror. It was the local parish church band. (laughs) The woman singing hadn't hit a correct note since 1968. The guitarist once had six strings but thought that two were adequate and the word rhythm meant nothing to the drummer. They got up and they prayed that the rivers of life would flow through Malaysia and Myanmar and all these different places I'd never heard of. And the lad sitting in front of me had no idea what was going on. Clueless. 
And then they got up to sing a song and I thought, it cannot get any worse. And it didn't. They got up to sing a song, Consuming Fire, by a guy called Tim Hughes. The opening line of that song, there must be more than this. And in that moment, my heart broke. Because I'd always grown up in church being told that God had a plan for my life. He had a plan that was good, it was to prosper and not to harm me. But if he had a plan for my life, he must have a plan for the lives of those lads sitting in front of me. Either he had a plan for my life and their lives, or he had no plan at all. That moment undoubtedly changed my life. I went on to uh, work as part of the chaplaincy team at Weatherby Young Offenders for three years. I did a degree here in York in criminology and and now have the massive privilege of heading up uh, Alpha's prison work across the UK and and Ireland. But the crucial thing is this. If I'd never been asked if I wanted a visit, my life would have taken a totally different direction. Undoubtedly, I'd be a French teacher by now and what an awful French teacher I would have made. I wonder why you first came to church, whether you've been in church for for years or or you have just come in the last couple of weeks. Maybe somebody invited you here. Perhaps somebody invited you on Alpha. Maybe you were taken to church by your grandma. But somebody once brought you to church and for some reason you've stuck. Perhaps you had an encounter with Jesus that really, really changed your life forever. Perhaps you found community. It's a place where you feel safe and where you feel valued. And if that's your reason for being here, oh man, we are so pleased you're here. We are so, so pleased you're here. Some of us will have stuck with church because it's where we found our community. And arguably some people have stuck with church because they find it a really tough place to be. But church was never intended to be a social club. William Temple, a former archbishop, said this, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members. The church isn't a place where you pay a membership fee and you reap the benefits. C.S. Lewis said this, and if you've done a sermon and you haven't quoted C.S. Lewis, have you really done a sermon? <laughs> this is a pearl. If you take nothing away, take this away. It's easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects. Education, building, missions, holding services. Just as it's easy to think that the state has a lot of different objects, military, political, economic, and whatnot. But in a way, things are much simpler than that. The state exists simply to promote and protect the ordinary happiness of human beings. A husband and wife chatting over a fire, a couple of friends having a game of darts in the pub, a man reading his book in his own room or digging in his garden. That is what the state is for. And unless they're helping to increase and prolong and protect such moments, all the laws, parliaments, armies, courts, police, economics are simply a waste of time. In the same way, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, and C.S. Lewis says even the Bible itself is simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. God became man for no other purpose. Throughout the weeks of Alpha, we've looked at prayer, reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit evil. But actually, I think that the first two weeks that we addressed were some of the most important questions I believe that anybody can ever address. Who is Jesus and why did he die? 
Because these two questions are at the cornerstone of the Christian faith. These two questions, who is Jesus and why did he die? Actually, for people looking from outside of the church today can look wholly irrelevant when it seems there might be more important questions that we should ask today. I question why children in the poorest places of this earth go hungry, but I do not. I question why uh, I was born into a certain postcode, and I'll probably do all right in life, but somebody born just 20 minutes away from me in the South Wales Valleys can ex- expect a life expectancy of around 55 years, 23 years less than I will expect for 20 minutes in a car. I don't understand why some people make it through life unscathed, yet some people leave life deeply, deeply troubled. I don't have answers to life. I question daily what life means. And in view of all these things, people outside the church may ask, why on earth do we look to somebody 2,000 years ago to deal with today's problems? And certainly, why do we waste time telling others about him when there are other things to be doing? There are far bigger issues in the mix to focus on history. Good question, maybe. And as Christians, I passionately believe that we should be at the forefront of tackling issues of politics, of social justice and education. We need to be here to change this earth. But as we begin to look at these issues through the lens of Jesus and what it means to tell others about Jesus, there's actually a second dimension in play. In John 11, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this statement has uh, massive implications because when we view uh, telling others uh, about God from this angle, we see that we're not only dealing with our time here on earth and all the, the problems and issues that that creates, but actually, as the Bible describes, an age that is yet to come. In this age yet to come, we see a world where Revelation says that he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed. And in telling people about Jesus, in communicating the gospel and what it means to follow him, we're inviting people to take part in this journey of viewing life from an eternal perspective. We're inviting them to know and love a God who created them, who wants to spend eternity with them. In telling others about God and and what he's done, we bring great hope and we bring light into a dark situation. The gospel, the good news, provides us with hope that the things on earth are not permanent, but that God is everlasting. How do we go about this? What's the formula? There are many ways of sharing faith. There are whole books on evangelism. I'm pretty sure my granddad has made a career out of it, if I'm honest. Uh, people have created formulas uh, for it. The miracle question, if God could do one miracle in your life, what would it be? And there are these great things. But, but hear this. In telling others about Jesus and what he has done, there is power in living in the everyday There is great power in the story that we have. In 1 Peter 5 verse 3 it says this, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. 
And I think this verse in 1 Peter has been taken out of context over many years when it comes to talking about faith. We've made it into a passage that demands that every Christian uh, will practice intellectual, I can't even say it, let alone understand it, intellectualism, uh, to know every answer to the question we may or may not be asked. But actually what this verse doesn't say is probably more important. It doesn't say be prepared to give an answer for everyone who gives a question about existentialism. Or be prepared to answer the most difficult question defending Levitical laws. And if you don't, then goodness help you. It says this. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. I remember being told this verse as a young person and being terrified. I wasn't a scientist. I wouldn't know the answer. But as we read this passage and we think about it being um, prepared and, and being prepared, it says to be prepared for a, to give an answer for the hope that we have. I began to realise that actually we have something that nobody could argue against. Our testimony. The reason that we have hope. That in being prepared to share testimony, that we give a reason for hope that we have and find a joy in sharing. I felt a burden of explaining my faith going and a joy in sharing God's goodness with my friends. Why did I have hope? Because I'd seen God do this thing. Do I necessarily know how he did it? No. Do I know why he did it? No. Do I know he did it? Yes. Hear me right, we desperately need intellectuals in this world. We need apologists to answer those difficult questions. But every single person has a story. And every Christian has a story about how God has turned their lives upside down. Whether your story comes from a kind of massive transformation or one day you just knew God was real. That is a great story of transformation. As we testify to that adventure and mission that God has called us to. So what does it look like to share our story? Um, anyone will know, who knows me will, will know that there's one word in the dictionary that I cannot stand. And it gets, kind of, um, it gets put out on a trolley into church. And I literally, if I could ban this word, I'd ban it. Does anybody know what that word is? No, not quite that word. Who said that? intentional there it is I hate the word intentional like if I could ban a word I would park it in 101 right because when I hear people use the word intentional I see this kind of God switch that this is my this is my normality of life and this is my intentional time oh it makes me shiver just thinking about it but actually as we begin to tell our testimony as our testimony becomes embedded in life as we begin to live out life through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of Christ, actually we begin our whole lives to be a gospel of telling others. St. Catherine of Siena said this, be who God created you to be and you'll set the world on fire. I want to encourage you that as we bring God into our everyday, into our normality, to expect that he will heal, to expect that we will see people saved, to expect that we will see that those gripped by addictions will be free, that there is great power in telling others about Jesus. This is no rocket science or special formula. It's about God being present in our every day. Friends, I'm probably about as uncharismatic as they come. 
But actually, I'm so excited that the power of God is so much greater than my strength, that his love can release people, that I'm so excited as I look at seeing other people being bold and stepping out. And I want to be like that. I want to grasp hold of that. I was out for um, dinner with a friend in Stockton this week, and um, we left the restaurant. And I left the restaurant, and I was like, thank you very much, lovely meal, you know. And my mate walked out, and he was like, thanks so much, and just make sure you know that Jesus loves you. And I was like, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. The conservative evangelical in me was dying. And as I sat in my car on the way home, those three words... Jesus loves you. They were the three words that brought me to this church. Two people in a canteen in my university telling me that Jesus loved me. That is why I'm here. That is why I'm here in a church that has had such a massive, massive impact on my life and my walk. That where God is at the centre. As God becomes centre stage in our walks, we see him move. We see lives changed and transformed. So that's all very well and good. If it's purely that simple, it's, it, it's great. But why is it so hard? <laughs> why is it so difficult? If we rest on the promise of God, if we're so desperate to, uh, come, for people to come to know Jesus, why do we find it so hard? And I think there are a couple of things at play. I'm going to be really honest. These are my biggest struggles. They might not be yours. This is just what was on my heart. The first is fear factor. I grew up in a as I said, quite a conservative evangelical church in South Wales. They, they embraced social justice like nobody I've ever seen. They were absolutely amazing. My passion for social justice for prisons was being birthed well before I entered a prison. They, they embraced the, 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 four, the four A's of Welsh hospitality that we still try and embrace today, which is anything for anyone, anytime and anywhere. Anything for anyone and anytime and anywhere. But one thing I got from this, this church which has really challenged me over my life, was a sense of urgency. And actually, it was a, being honest, it was a sense of urgency that was driven by fear. I got this sense, as Christians, we were living against a ticking time bomb, that my friends and family were in the world's most complex social escape room, and I was on the outside. I had the knowledge, I'm in the freedom, and whilst I'm on the outside, I had some form of grasp to get them out, but if they didn't listen, if they didn't hear me, then a great and terrible destiny awaited them. If I rested on my laurels, their future was slowly trickling away. And I found this to be the most terrible burden that I could carry and one that did not fill me with the freedom of Christ. But as I've journeyed, knowing that God is kind, that pressure has been removed, that I know that God is greater than my weakness. As I look towards Jesus addressing the topic of salvation, what it means to follow him, I hear him talk in words of hope rather than words of despair. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. The sheep know my voice and they follow me. Come to me, all who are heavy, burden and labour and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Finally, probably what is one of my favourite verses in the Bible, the thief, the prisoner, hang in on the cross next to Jesus. His very end days, the words of hope that Jesus gives him. He said, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
In Jesus, there was no escape room tactics, but an invitation to the greatest party on earth. There were no fear tactics. There was only hope. Secondly, we're fearful of the outcomes of what it might mean to tell others. I don't underestimate the challenge of um, telling uh, people about Jesus, of sharing our faith at work. I work in Christian ministry, and somebody once told me they'd love to feel what it feels like to be me, to be a professional Christian. And I was thinking, you and me both. You and me both. But actually, workplaces can be hostile environments. Some of us will work in places where we are not allowed to share our faith. But actually, if we know that God is kind, that thank God it doesn't rest on us, that if we just seek him and seek his will, that he is good and he is faithful. There was a girl at my school, she was always interested in uh, faith. She used to ask me about my faith, but I was proper closed. I was like, "Mm, yeah, yeah, ask somebody else, you know. She was interested about it. I was fearful about what others might say. What might they think of me? What might they, how might they react? I regretted not saying anything for many years. About a year ago, she emailed me. She said, um, my boyfriend's a Christian and I've, um, we've decided to go to New Wine together. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, interesting introduction into the Christian faith, New Wine. Like, positive. She didn't have a faith. But I encouraged her she should go. And a little while later, one of my uh, managers in work said to me, would you come to New Wine because we're going to run Alpha there? And we invited her along. And for the first time, she discovered Jesus. God is kind. He was kind in, in, in bringing her back. There was no need for regret. There was only need for more challenge. He is bigger than our weakness. He is stronger than our failings. Finally, to finish up, I want to say this. I think that at times, sharing our faith can be challenging because we find it boring. I'm going to be honest. At times, I can feel like sharing my faith, sharing what Jesus has done doesn't give the instant feeling that I've come to, to want and come to, to want to know. You know, I listen to my friends, some of whom are quite a bit more charismatic than me, and they, you know, they've been praying for seven people over a chicken and bacon ranch in Subway. Like, well, I want that. I want that. But actually, as I realize as I step out of that comfort zone to meet God where he is, Actually, I begin to see change. As I step out away from the comfort and closed nature of myself into the place where he is already working, that I see people come to relationship with him. There was nothing special about the hearty Italian bread in that subway, but there was something special about my mate stepping out and saying, do you know what? This is going to be hard, but we're going to do it. It's not going to be boring. We're not, we're not called to live a boring life. If we are, then I don't want to be part of it. But actually, as we realize that God is kind, he is strong in our weakness, he meets us where we're at, I'm praying for miracles. I am praying for miracles. We've seen miracles on Alpha here. Praise God for that. 
that we've stepped out as a church to tell others about that faith that we have. So as we respond, I'm going to invite the band to uh, come up. And we're going to take a bit of time to respond here to what God is saying. Um, I have no agenda here. I have no agenda. I have no kind of way to go. This isn't planned out particularly. But I think there's two, um, there's two big things, two big things I want to kind of highlight as we respond. Firstly, uh, maybe uh, you've been a Christian for a while and um, you've got to that point where that sharing uh, your faith, that, that living out Jesus' kind of um, commandments has just got a bit monotonous. It's just got to the point where, actually, do you know what, it's just a bit monotonous. It's just a bit, we, I'd love you to be prayed for today. That God will reignite that passion. I went through about six, eight months over the last eight months where I, was, I felt like that. I felt like that until somebody prayed and actually a spark was ignited that generated that passion. Secondly, I want to I open up to the possibility that you've um, come here to church. Maybe this is your first time. Maybe you've been on Alpha. Maybe you've been kind of listening to, to what's been said. Maybe you've kind of thinking about this. And actually, there comes a point where you say, either I, I really believe this or actually, I don't, I, I don't want to. And I'd love for you to say um, today, I'd love to give the opportunity to respond to God's call on your heart. And um, I, we're not, we're not going to get a prayer team at the front, you know. It's, like, it's daunting enough saying, do you know what, Jesus, take over my life than to have to walk to the front and, you know, be surrounded in a huddle. Like, that is my worst nightmare. Um, so if that is you, I'd love you to turn to the person who you came with and say, I'd love to pray for you. Funnily enough, friends, we don't find in the Bible a certain specific prayer that you pray out and then suddenly you enter into being a Christian. I can't find it. If anybody can find it, please tell me the reference after. I don't think you'll find it. But actually, it's about opening up our hearts to God, saying, God, have your way in my life. I'll follow after you to taste that goodness of what you have. And so, friends, as we... Pray. I'd love you to turn to the people you are with and pray. You might just have met them. You might have known them for years. That's great. That's okay. Um, but I'd love you to do that. And um, I think Ads and Kat will, will just wander around. If, you'd, if you want to grab us and flag us for, to pray with you, we'd love to do that. But I feel today that there is maybe one person, maybe even a couple of people, who are saying today, do you know, I want to take that step on that journey. To know Jesus. To follow him to trust in him.